The Kaplan Community Podcast is a platform for the wider Kaplan community to share ideas and insights that can guide us on our professional and academic development. It's easy to listen to, but tackle some hard-hitting issues. And we think it's a great way to appreciate diverse perspectives on life, learning, and careers. Hi, I'm Vanessa Stafford. I'm the Academic Learning Manager at Kaplan Business School. Today, we're lucky enough to have Vanessa Stafford as our guest on the Kaplan Community Podcast. Thanks for coming, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. As Academic Learning Manager, you have a pretty wide-ranging impact, and I know that before work from home, we were nearby desk buddies. So <laughs> I actually got to overhear and, and learn little bits of what you do, but it's wide ranging and in my mind, quite exciting. Could you explain for us what it is you do? Yes. So essentially, I was employed at KBS six years ago to fill a position that, that wasn't there. And it's, I think in a nutshell, assisting our lecturers to be better at at teaching you know ultimately so I deal with their professional development I give them a space on my KBS where they can learn their their craft better so I've got lots of PD events that I do and they can come along to those or they can watch videos so there's that um, sort of asynchronous learning space that I provide for them and then I am so lucky to be able to just spend my week having Zoom meetings with lecturers who say, you know, I've got a, I've got a problem, can you solve it? And we have an hour chat and by the end of it we've had fun and we've solved a problem. And that is just so rewarding. So I really love the, the aspect of being able to use all of my teaching career and really help new lecturers, especially those who have come from industry. So they're really fantastic at the content that they're teaching. You know, they, they're really knowledgeable about the content, but maybe they're quite green with the, the science of teaching. So I, I love that about my job. So I really just help lecturers. I like to call them teachers because we're not lecturing, we're teaching. So I'll call them teachers from now on. Yeah, so I, I really am passionate about spreading my passion for teaching to our teaching staff and really trying to get them as excited as I am about how best to teach our students. Vanessa, I was one of those persons who came in from industry and had a big passion for teaching and somebody had to teach me to be a better teacher. I'm proud to be a teacher. So rather than mm. be called a lecturer, I'm, I'm proud of what I do as teaching. But you've mentioned that you teach all day, you teach teachers how to be better teachers and, the, and deal with their problems all day. What's the main problem that most lecturers seem to have when they're trying to learn how to be a good teacher? Well, I'm not sure if you've noticed, Richard, but recently we've had this thing called COVID-19. And it means Hadn't noticed, that, sorry. <laughs> it means that whereas maybe my brand was a little bit low in 2019, I maybe had one or two lecturers coming to voluntary PD sessions. All of a sudden, I became the only person in the organisation that could teach people how to teach via Zoom. And I'm not saying that COVID-19 is a good thing, but I am saying that there has been a positive flow-on effect to my job and being able to teach more people what I know. So I studied a Master's of Learning Sciences and Technology because, you know, to say the future is a blend of synchronous and asynchronous learning is just silly because it's actually the present, right? And it was the present even before COVID hit. 
but having everyone forced into online teaching and learning. Really, for people like me who love online teaching and learning, I'm really happy that it has been given the status that I think it deserves because, you know, I think the the classroom teaching is amazing. I love it. I, I do miss it. But it's not an either or. So have, being a classroom teacher, you can't, you can't no longer, I think, be just a classroom teacher. You need to also know how to teach online as well. And so the biggest problem that I'm solving, I think, is just that transition for teachers, those who have only taught face-to-face and now not only have to deal with technology but just the philosophy of being an online teacher and the the lack of control that a teacher has now over the classroom when at any point your student can turn their camera off and put their mute button on and leave the room and you have no control over that. So I've actually been really proud to be able to help those teachers who were struggling with that transition of those expectations of classroom behaviour, like face-to-face classroom behaviour, being taken into the online space, which you just cannot do. Like online teaching is not just an extension of classroom teaching. It's a completely different beast. So that's been the, the most challenging thing for our, for our teachers to um, overcome And I'm not saying that everyone is going to turn into the best online teacher and never want to go back to the classroom. You know, that's not going to happen. But I hope that just throughout those little interactions with me over the last year and a half, they at least have had a, a problem solved, you know, so I've got a problem and I don't want it to happen again next week. So my first priority is let's solve that problem. But on a wider macro level, I want to impart a love of online teaching in them. I'd say actually online learning, although it's been around for actually decades, it's been pretty underdeveloped in the education industry. Mm. And over the last, as you said, since COVID, it's accelerated and even been forced upon the world, right? Even Mm. primary school kids. When we transitioned to online learning, I was a lecturer and I remember getting your emails and I can say firsthand, you made a huge impact. Besides these problems we've talked about, though, I'm interested in your ideas on what the future looks like, because I I think it's a trend that's going to only increase. Yeah, it, it looks really exciting to me, actually, but there's challenges ahead. So, for example, if I was to start an entire new school from scratch and design an entire curriculum, then I would be utilising 4.0 technology. So just to expand on that, so we've got education 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 and 4.0. And currently we are sitting around a blend of 2.0 and 3.0. And what that means is 2.0 is still quite teacher-focused. You know, it's a teacher-centred model. 3.0 education, I'm proud to say at KBS we're doing mostly, and that's really thinking about learning as socially constructed. Um, It utilises technology not as much as 4.0, but it it does utilise technology. I mean, we have MyKBS, for example, so that has asynchronous learning embedded in it. 
3.0 is, you know, teaching's done by everyone, not just the teacher. And that's the, the opposite of the lecture model, for example. So that's why I don't like to call our teachers lecturers, because that's 2.0. And also the, the point of 3.0 education is, and I think this is what I'm very happy that KBS focuses on, is we're creating communicative and effective co-workers and, and really like entrepreneurs, people who can think. Now, 2.0 education it is not really set up to allow students to think. So that's why I like where we are at the moment in the world, really that social constructivism, peers learning from peers, questioning the teacher, you know, sometimes jumping onto the internet to find additional resources and bringing it in, you know, a little bit more freedom of where you can learn and who you can learn from. But what I'm super excited about is 4.0, and that's really building in autonomy, choice, um, like the motivation to learn, lots of asynchronous learning. It's kind of flipped learning. I don't know whether you've heard the phrase flipped learning where students do, uh, you know, a bulk of work before the class asynchronously and then in a live environment they're more prepared to do more social constructivism. So sort of flipped learning boosted. The elements of gamification, you know, really designing learning to be fun through gamification. And most importantly, I think, if we're following the, the fourth industrial revolution, is inquiry-based learning. So saying that the teacher is not the, the person in the class with all the information. And in fact, you know, we're talking about 3.0 social constructivism with peers learning from peers, that that's also not the source of truth, but going out and using technology and using data to learn from and then bringing that back to your peers and, and your teacher. So I'm really excited about 4.0 education giving technology the respect that I think it deserves in really creating a smart blended learning model. Vanessa, the world of education 4.0 with that autonomy, the gamification and just use of technology in general, to me, excites me as well. But I'm really curious, the structure of schools nowadays, whether it's secondary school or university and post-graduate education, is really based on compliance regulation and meeting a curriculum objective. So in 4.0, what does the future school look like and what is the role of the teacher in 4.0? I don't know the answer to that perfectly just yet. But what don't, I don't worry. think... Don't worry, neither do I, so I'm, that's why I ask. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what I think it means. It, I, I think it means that we need to be much more flexible in how we assess. And I'll just give you a really tiny, tiny snippet of, of, of how I'm going through this at the moment. It's giving the choice of learning over to the student more than saying, I have these 25 things written down and I want the students to achieve that by the end of the 12 weeks. That's a really easy way to write a syllabus. But it's not the future because when you go into the workplace, no one gives you that perfect little checkbox. You know, problems are messy and you need to solve them by collaborating with people, um, finding information on the internet yourself, you know, synthesizing all of that information and making a judgment call. So that is inherently messy. So what does the future look like? It means that 
people like us who are designing rubrics, we have to fight for what we believe in. And if someone is wanting you to tick a box, but you know that that is not the best way that a student will learn, we just have to keep fighting against that. I'm still getting my head around learning science, and I'm really interested in the the future that you're talking about. I'm interested if it's more focused on what in medical philosophy might be called the subnormal or supernormal development. So in the history of psychology has been built around studying depression rather than happiness and bringing people to a, a normal environment. So if we look at learning, are we more focused on bringing people who have less optimal experiences to a good learning outcome? Or is it to bring teaching and learning above what we would consider a normal standard, like, say, Montessori program development? Mm, That's a fascinating question, Kieran. And I think that touches on my love of student-centered learning and Scaffolding, I mean, scaffolding is a term that every teacher and, and learning scientist has used a bazillion times, <laughs> but what it, what it means is, yes, we're saying that every learner has their own goal and, you know, if we just take it to a really rudimentary example of, you know, a KBS student, is their goal to get an HD or is their goal to get a pass? Okay, that's their goal, but now what's their capabilities? What have they? What's in their toolkit when they come to class? You don't know what's in a student's toolkit unless you ask them. So student-centred learning is really all about finding out the reasons why your student is studying, finding out what is in their toolkit. Do they have learning challenges? Do they have social challenges? And then how do they interact with the goal? So do I have a student who is really challenged in some way, so maybe a neurodivergent thinker, but they still want to get an HD. And they get an HD, they're trying to get an HD in a syllabus that has not been designed with accessibility or diversity and inclusion in mind. Okay, so that's that's what I'm fascinated with. That is a cocktail of stress if we don't design education for everybody and for everybody's individual goals. Now, is that really difficult to do? Of course it is, but we have to do it. Vanessa, you mentioned the word a neurodivergent student, and that really piqued my interest. That's, that's fascinating. So my question, we talked about capability in 4.0 and student-centered learning. And not all students are exactly the same. They have different motivations, et cetera. Mm. So if I'm neurodivergent, how does that capability differ from the, quote, typical student? When I think of my history of ESL teaching, I have had, you know, 12 years of classroom teaching of students who are learning a second language. So there's that right, there's that initial challenge that they are trying to communicate in a different language. But they're also trying to communicate in a different language as a particular and unique learner. So one person could get your point immediately, you know, that that's the way they think. You've taught them present perfect tense and they just get it. But then you might have someone else 
they are slower at thinking, and it, it's fascinating to me. And it has led me to believe that every single person responds differently to the education that you're giving them. And I find that a really beautiful challenge. Well, I guess since we're talking about different learning styles, and, and Richard has brought this up, something that's really relevant to Kaplan Business School would be culturally relevant learning, whether it's East and West or even just using colloquial in the classroom. What's your take on how to include cultural relevance in study? I'm so glad you asked this question because I will tell you a very quick story. When I first arrived at KBS, I was quite shocked by how many case studies in our slides were just your standard, you know, Googles and, and your, white, your white male entrepreneurs. Of course, then I looked more closely and I realised we had quite a diverse teaching staff, culturally diverse teaching staff to begin with, but then, of course, we had 97% international students and still every case study was based on an American company. So it's hard to, it takes time and it takes effort to design a curriculum for a culturally diverse classroom simply because of the practicality of finding your content that is not um, Eurocentric. If you are teaching a culturally diverse group of people, then it is imperative that you respect that and you take longer in your search to find the resources that are culturally appropriate for them. But just tying into our other conversation about 4.0 education is that maybe we will come a time, there will, there will come a time where we're not providing 100% of that content. So the pressure on us to say this is all you need to know and making sure you tick all of those boxes of gender, ability, culture, sexuality, that doesn't have to be on the curriculum writer's shoulders anymore because you can de devise curriculum that allows the student to go out and find the data that's relevant to them as well and bring it back. Vanessa, this is really fascinating because I'm tying it back to what you just said about cultural relevance, and I agree. And then it occurred to me the question, this inquiry-based learning is so important. And I do love this quote from Nelson Mandela that says, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So what I would like to know is what has changed your world in education, Vanessa? What podcasts, books, movies... What do you listen to? What do you read that you could recommend to other teachers to rise to the 4.0 standard? Yeah, I love the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Um, it's by a woman called Bonnie Stohoviak. She is inspirational. So she is a professor at, um, I'm going to forget the university in America now, and she teaches a range of subjects, mostly around business, I believe. but. Her podcast, when I stumbled across it, the one word I can use to describe it is inclusive. So even though every episode is talking about, you know, maybe a challenge in the teaching and learning sphere and how to solve that challenge, it always has an element of being student-centred and has an element of self-care for practitioners so it's never judgmental. She always is honest and she says, I'm giving you this advice, but I actually 
don't follow it half the time because advice is what we strive for. Um, but sometimes that isn't actually what happens in the classroom. So she's really open and honest. She's a flawed educator because we're all flawed humans. And I just, I honestly can't say enough how much I love her. <laughs> so that's that's teaching in higher ed. I recommend any teacher who has just started or has been doing it for, you know, 25 years like I have to listen to her. The other one I love is a YouTube channel called Cult of Pedagogy. And this is another American woman who just does really simple, effective, short clips on pedagogy. So how do you do a think-pair-share? How do you deal with certain quiet behaviours in the classroom? You know, well, whatever you can think of, whatever tiny little pedagogical issue you might have in the classroom, I guarantee she has a short YouTube clip to help you with. And can I just tell you why I love finding a really good YouTube channel to follow? It's because we are busy. Everyone is busy. And if you say to someone who wants to be a teacher or who wants to be a better teacher, go and do a three-year degree or go and do, you know, supplement what you've got with with a a one-year course, well, that's just unrealistic for so many practitioners. But if I can say, hey, go and watch two videos a week just to solve one tiny problem as you go, then that is what makes a great practitioner, I think. The final one I will say, and that does tie into having a busy life, is Coursera. I'm currently studying a gamification course with them now. I love it. I love being able to say that in, you know, 2022, I'm going to learn three new practical things that I can help myself with in my teaching, but also KBS lecturers with. So I'm just going to take two months and I'm going to do a self-paced online course and tick off and apply what you've learned. I really love that. Learn, apply, learn, apply. So they're my three, teaching in higher ed, cult of pedagogy and Coursera courses. I think that's a really great sort of collection that gives people a lot to work on, actually. But I, I can recommend Coursera as well. And now that you say gamification, because I find that really really interesting. And and my wife works on that as well. I'd be interested in your take on gamification and virtual reality. KBS has started integrating some virtual reality into its careers program. It's kind of an interesting way that they do it. They actually prepare people for office situations through VR. Which do you think might be more easily incorporated into the classroom in the next five years, let's say? Virtual reality Oh, don't get me started. That is so exciting. I I don't have a VR headset at home because I think that that would take me down a rabbit warren, (laughs) especially during COVID. I would be travelling the world with my VR headset in my lounge room and not do any work. And, you know, when you talk about VR, we're talking about immersive learning, right? If we link that to gamification, gamification is, I think, easier to implement because it's possibly just got a broader range of activities that you can use. Gamification began in 1980 with a man in the UK who was tasked with taking a very boring, static chat room and gamifying it to make it more exciting and and motivational. And 
he essentially designed the first gamification, you know, using game design elements for a reason other than having fun. You know, so these students were having fun because they kind of became avatars and then they were in a virtual world rather than just typing in a chat room. The idea that you are immersed in learning because you are within it, that's super cool about VR, but it can easily be achieved through gamification as well. I mean, especially if we're talking about just including an avatar in a scenario. I personally believe that VR is going to get a lot more attention simply because it's, oh, I don't know, it's sexier and it gets a lot of investment already through through gaming and other parts of, of industry. But of course, combining the two, I mean, all you need to do with your VR is add a few gaming elements of, of a leaderboard, some likes, some badges, some motivational tools to get students learning, and then you've, you've combined the two. I have found this very interesting and learned quite a lot. I've worked in a few different areas of the education industry, and I think education is very, very broad. I always like to bring it back to careers. So you have an incredibly interesting career path. You started out as a teacher, and how would somebody follow a career path like yours? How would somebody do what you do if they're interested? Would it, would it be becoming a teacher first, or what are the steps, do you think? So actually, Kieran, I'm going to go back even further because I didn't start out in education. I started out trying to be a rock star. <laughs> and clearly, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> clearly I failed. <laughs> At 30, I then went to university and started my, my teaching career from that. So went into um, English as a second language learning and did that for 10 years. So I just wanted to to say that to people who are on a, on a journey of education and choosing their career, that everything you do is the right thing to do because there is no one way. The fact that I was able to go to university as a 30-year-old meant that I did much better at university. I, I know that. I know that for a fact. I would not have been focused enough at 20. But the best thing I ever did was pursue a master's and not just because it got me to Kaplan Business School, but it just expanded my horizons even more. So doing that master's certainly gave me a new career field, but it also gave me the self-worth that I was after, you know, uh, was able to say yes. All of the information that I have in my head, yes, it's actually worth a piece of paper and it's worth the higher salary that you get because of that piece of paper. If you choose the path of being an educator, I personally think that comes with extreme responsibility to be the best one that you can be. In my job, that, that's what I love about my job, helping lecturers to find that passion and find that empathy and move away from content-centred teaching, curriculum-centred teaching, teacher-centred teaching to student-centred teaching. And that's, so that wrap-up is well put. I totally endorse what you've just said. It's, it's a nice way to end the podcast. And unfortunately, now we do have to wrap up. I generally have learned a lot about learning science, education 4.0, the use of technologies, and really our approach to helping students achieve their best. As educators, that's our responsibility. Vanessa, thank you very much. It has been interesting. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, had, I had a great time. Thanks so much. If you're feeling unwell or in need of help, reach out. Anyone in Australia can get immediate mental health support by calling the National Lifeline on 13 11 14. And Beyond Blue has great 24-7 support staff at 1300 22 46 36. Kaplan employees can contact HR or access free counselling. KBS students have access to free confidential campus counsellors, safety and support services such as Sonder. Reach out to your campus student experience team for friendly guidance on accessing these services.